Hello, my name is Tim Schuf, and this is A Faster Horse. In this episode, I want to talk about smartphone photography and especially how it relates to classical digital photography, if you can call it that. It might come in handy to listen to the first episode of this run about photography because there I talked about the whole digital photography pipeline, basically. And spoiler alert, parts of that might become relevant because smartphone photography is also digital photography. I think it's interesting to talk about smartphone photography because with every refresh cycle of flagship smartphones, the photography portion of the reviews gets bigger and bigger. In addition to that, there are headlines like professional photographer dumps his $10,000 of photography gear for a smartphone and that's always just a PR stunt or clickbait. But it still annoys me on one hand. But on the other hand, you got to recognize that there is a legitimate core to the argument that big cameras should be that much better because, well, they are just that much bigger. And smartphone photography, on the other hand, has gotten way better than it has any right to be. As untrue as the statement that professional photographers or even enthusiast photographers could dump their gear for smartphones, the argument that you could or should just use whatever is right for you, well, that is true for your personal photography. It doesn't lead us further in the discussion about how we can push photography forward and the photographic process forward. As always, or as, as per usual, I am annoyed by the, in my opinion, wrong discussion that is being had about this topic. So let's get started. First of all, we get a look at what smartphone photography is defined by. And that is, first of all, its limitations, physical limitations, that is, followed by the strategies that have been developed by the manufacturers to deal with those limitations. And then I think this gets lost in many conversations about smartphone photography. The fact that it is most of all a consumer camera. I mean, we talk about the most consumer photographic device when we talk about smartphones. That defines a lot about what smartphones do. And we got to keep that in mind and translate that into other aspects when we talk about what we can learn from smartphone photography. So the physical limitations, the size of the sensor of a smartphone may come to mind, but actually that's just a consequence of the thickness of the smartphone. The thickness of the smartphone limits the size of the lenses that can project a useful image circle onto that sensor. So We are already bending the rules with the camera bump. That's a new word we, uh, we learned in the last few years. And the lens extrudes from the, uh, from the smartphone body because that thickness, that extra thickness is needed to increase the size of the sensor in a specific smartphone. 
Small sensors are just notorious for bad low-light performance because each individual photocyte on the sensor can gather less light, and that's basically it. There's another aspect, and currently I don't know what the reason is, but I will link a Gerald Undone YouTube video for you. What's important is the consequence, and that is, with a small sensor, it's hard to achieve a pleasing bokeh, or a rendering of autofocus elements that is blurry, or that appears a lot out of focus. Because the smaller the sensor, generally the deeper your depth of field is. It's not shallow, so you don't get blurry background or foreground, but the depth of field is deep. A lot of the scene is in focus. That's another optical effect of the sensor size that is found in smartphones. Looking at the strategies that have been developed to deal with those limitations, there is an umbrella term, and that is computational photography that we also have learned in the last few years. That is enabled by smartphones having a lot of processing power in total and especially compared to bigger old-school, even though digital cameras. Computational photography is an umbrella term. Anything can hide behind it. It can be a completely new technique. It can be a new algorithm or a marketing term. So we got to look at different mechanisms that, or individual mechanisms that have been invented. I just mentioned that smartphones have a hard time rendering autofocus elements. So achieving pleasing bokeh is something they can't do. To deal with that, the portrait mode was pioneered by Apple in producing the iPhone. And that is, I think you can only define it as a simulation. And the most interesting thing about it is that it works by gathering depth data. So it doesn't do anything optically. It just gathers depth data from an extra sensor or from an extra camera. and determines how blurry something should be based upon the distance to the camera or the subject in focus. But to be honest, I'm really not a fan of this effect because I don't think it looks great even when it works right and it doesn't work right most of the time because it has a very hard time with hair and transparent objects. Overall, I think it's, it's bad. <laughs> Sorry. The next uh, bin of strategies can be summed up as scene recognition. It must have been there before, but I heard people talk about it with the iPhone 11 and Pixel 4 specifically, I think. This is basically where the, as the name says, where the smartphone tries to recognize what kind of scene you're taking a photo of and deals with it. Basically, it would try to brighten up faces or give the, in, in a portrait situation or give the sky some punch in a landscape photo. And to be honest, I don't know if it's only different post-processing or if it already grabs different data depending on that scene. But uh, to be honest, it really doesn't matter. The next method is an umbrella thing as well, I think, because this is where multiple exposures stitching, bracketing, and of course the algorithms that keep everything together 
really can trump and play out the strengths of the smartphone. It begins in low light, the iPhone 11 and the Pixel 4 and the Pixel 3 already did a lot of stuff there that's really impressive because, as I said, notoriously the small sensors of smartphones have very bad performance in low light. So they deal with that with a technique that basically photographers with big cameras would also use, although most of the time not in a low light scenario. Because smartphones, they take multiple exposures where with a bigger camera you would just take one long exposure and use a tripod. But normally you don't have a tripod with your smartphone. So the smartphone takes a long exposure for the light info basically, but that photo gets blurry and then it takes a shorter exposure to get the sharpness or get an idea of the scene from that and then take several more to fill up all the data. And of course, there the algorithm has to decide what to stitch and how to expose the whole scene. There's a lot going on there. And I want to mention here one video specifically that I'm going to link in the show notes, a YouTube video where the Pixel 4 was compared to the Canon RP or the R, the low-end model of the new full-frame series by Canon. I was blown away by the results that the Pixel 4 produced because the Canon just produced a very noisy file. Pixel 4 basically gave a clean picture. You can put all kinds of qualifications on that, why that wouldn't be useful for a professional or even enthusiast photographer. But I think at this point, you just got to stand back and admire what the smartphone was able to do there. The whole multiple exposure and stitching strategy is also, of course, utilized and has been for ages, relatively speaking, in smartphones in high contrast situations, which means situations with high dynamic range, which means they stitch together exposures as well as in low light situations, but of course, in a different way. This is also a technique that photographers have been using, but of course, smartphones do that on the fly. Another method that is similar but a little different is the Pixel does this and the iPhone 11 Pro does it in a different way. It's been called sweater mode, which is kind of funny, where camera shake and or information from a different camera sensor on the same smartphone is used to basically fill up some data and get a higher effective resolution. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. So back to the main thread here. There's a bunch of processing. The user just presses the button and the smartphone decides what to do. This is where everything that I talked about in the first episode of this run comes to bear because the more processing or the more advanced processing that happens, the less creative control is well available to the end user in those circumstances. And that can take many different forms. I mean, with all the bracketing and stitching, there can be artifacts, but that's more of an undesired side effect. It's also something I picked up in the iPhone 11 and Pixel 4 reviews that reviewers said, A, that they weren't... Actually, I think that's from the low-light video I talked about. There, the 
guy who did the video said that he wasn't happy with the white balance that the Pixel 4 chose some of the time in low-light situations. Other reviewers mentioned that they could identify an iPhone 11 versus a Pixel 4 picture from the look in regards to, I think, also white balance and also how they chose to light faces or expose for faces or do that in post-processing. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's different, but it's kind of similar to the film looks back in the day. Of course, that's way more about color rendering and different characteristics, but there is a Pixel 4 look and there's an iPhone look, and that is, and th that's a different characteristic. And I think, I mean, it's, you could compare it to the design of the look of a film. Now, I want to take these perspectives on computational photography and see how they relate to classical digital photography. And for that purpose, I'm not going to talk about the portrait mode effect or the fake bokeh effect because I think it's bad and because it's just a simulation and not interesting. But all the stitching and bracketing functionality algorithms intelligence that has been developed because I think there is a new tool with unique new possibility that is not only a crutch. So it, it's worth it to think about how big cameras can use these technologies. As I already alluded to, there is a trade-off. There's a lot of possibilities through computational photography, but generally, or as we know them for now, they go hand in hand with a loss in creative control, which is opposed to the idea of a camera as just a tool that only really acts within parameters that are set by its operator. It's not a good analogy at all, but if you think of a camera as a hammer, then introducing computational photography makes things very much more unpredictable. With digital cameras, there's a lot of processing happening behind the scenes, even if you shoot raw. But still, if you set the ISO to 200 and give it a shutter speed and set the aperture, then the camera will just execute that command. But if you only continue that train of thought and don't think of another perspective, then you'll just end up making an argument for technological conservatism. And that won't happen, not on this podcast. So let's think about how we can reconcile the idea of a camera as a creative tool and the advantages of computational photography. It took me a while to get to that, but I think if we look at a system that has, been, has become more and more popular in photography, it's not that hard to see what computational photography can do in big cameras, and that is autofocus. You can think of it as a different layer that is basically happening before the picture is taken. But if you say with computational photography, okay, maybe I can get a better picture, but I don't know what the result will be and I will be to totally surprised and the picture won't be what I wanted it to be. The same is true for autofocus. Before Sony entered the game and basically made it just work, frustrated Fuji user speaking here, by the way, just kidding, though. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. 
generally speaking, in the evolution of autofocus, we got used to trust the camera, put it in the right mode, guess what it wanted to do, and then shoot and shoot and pray that the system did what you wanted. If it didn't, then you would just end up with autofocus pictures and that was it. That would be it. You, you couldn't do anything about it. The picture at the moment was lost. How much worse could it be with computational photography? So I don't think we have anything to lose. We have only a lot of possibilities to explore and new capabilities to gain. Again, as I said, I think the multiple exposure and bracketing and stitching is where the biggest opportunity lies for big cameras. It's really not that far off. If you think about raw shooting as data gathering, which it is instead of exposing for the final picture, there's a lot that can be done there. Modern cameras use IBIS, which means in-body image stabilization, and that really lends itself to just take some extra exposures and get some extra data. It doesn't even have to be a dedicated HDR thing. It just can work behind the scenes to lower the effective ISO, I think, because nobody cares about ISO. Even in an instance where you set the ISO manually, the camera could honor that in regards to exposure overall, but still gather more data to lower the noise. That's just an upside. And that is something that could be done without any disruption to the creative process. You might say, okay, but if I let the camera stitch and bracket just by itself, then I have a problem with moving objects. While that is true, or might be true in some circumstances, then, I know that's up to the manufacturers. They can figure that out and give you an extra mode, give you a bias that you can set for subjects standing still or subjects moving, whatever. If you think about aperture priority as a mode, you know, our understanding is you set the aperture and the camera does everything else and you also do auto ISO, so the camera decides on shutter speed and ISO. That is our understanding as we have it now. So it's not that much, that much of a stretch to imagine that the camera would handle the shutter speed even more flexible and combine information from different shots and give you the effect that you would achieve with, with a specific shutter speed. But since you let the camera decide what shutter speed to set anyway, there is nothing to lose in that regard because there was no creative decision made. So we have another parameter up for grabs after ISO. And I think very feasible, very possible, and not at all hard to sell or hard to pack in a feature if you think about it like that. And of course, I think kind of the elephant in the room with all these discussions is that the old school camera manufacturers have been a little bit slow in adapting these technologies. And that's just the old story with top dogs getting complacent. And I mean, it's not like they are making money hand over fist with the smartphones disrupting the point and shoot camera market. So there's nothing much to invest there. But it's clear that computational photography is a part of the photographic future. I think they are coming around. Finally, we are seeing glimpses of attempts to really embrace this topic. Olympus has a handheld high-res mode 
and Fuji just released a camera that does in-body HDR. So we are getting there slowly, but it's been very slow. But I am excited for what is possible with applying computational photography to big sensors. Changing gears completely, I want to talk about a few more, not random, but aspects that are just interesting to think about related to smartphone photography. The first one is an idea that I already had when I first discovered that in some camera manufacturers range there are, you know, there are different tiers of models and I was totally surprised to learn that you could take the same picture with a cheaper model and with a more expensive model. Thinking about it now is really obvious, but back then I didn't know that it's about image quality, but it's as much about how convenient, how easy something, a tool, lets you do a certain thing. To go back to my badge, previous example, an expensive hammer will put a nail in a wall and a cheap hammer will do the same, but it won't feel as good. It won't be as comfortable, you know. That can relate to the autofocus system of a camera or just the grip or the build quality or the placement of the dials or the amount of dials or custom function buttons. The camera is a tool that is as much about physicality, feel and everything as about the photographic system itself inside. So the imaging capability is a totally different beast. And I think we see that with smartphone photography because the relative to the size, the imaging capability is good, extremely good. But personally, I don't like shooting with a smartphone at all because the physicality is, is not great for it. I don't like shooting with the screen. I like a viewfinder because of the focus it gives me. Not focus any, any photo sense, but in the sense that I only see the frame that I want to compose. There is no control over shutter speed and I feel hamstrung by that somehow. There's all these factors. But it means nothing but accolades that we even think of critiquing these aspects with smartphones because their picture quality is, in certain circumstances, just that good that we would even consider a comparison with a big dedicated camera. Now that I mentioned that I don't like smartphone photography, it's time to contradict myself and recommend a specific feature of the Lightroom app on mobile devices. I will put a link in the show notes for how to enable this because it's a beta or experimental feature. It's Lightroom's long exposure mode. I think it does a very good job of reducing noise and simulating the effect of a long exposure by taking a lot of exposures and combining them after the fact. I had fun playing with that. And then also, and this is really just a random thought, with smartphone photography, it's most obvious though that it does matter on which device you look at your photos. And it's no surprise that smartphone photography is optimized for being looked at at smartphones. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Take a look at the show notes. They should be at fosterhorse.show slash two. I will be here next week. Have a good day. A Faster Horse is a production by Tim Schuf, made in Berlin, Germany. Cover art by Eike Drescher, music by Ola Dinat. 
For show notes and additional info, check out the website fasterhorse.show.